when when I talk to candidates in similar situations, what you've just described with the resume, where you've got short stints, what I'm looking for is um, reflection. So, because people will say, oh, "I really want to, my next job, I really want to be there for long term." First of all, what is what is long term to you? And then, why hasn't it happened already? Talk to me about these decisions that you made. Um, and so, what you want to see is the level of reflection that people are learning. Again, learning. You know, it's always about learning and refining and applying what you've learned. It doesn't have to be just about the job. It can be about yourself. And it's probably even more powerful if you can learn more about yourself. How do you get ten thousand people? to take a step to the left. What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high-performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. On today's episode, we have a recruitment specialist, the founder and managing director of S10, and the author of Employable, Seven Attributes to Assure Your Working Future. Our notable guest has a Bachelor of Arts where she enjoyed the subjects of HR and Japanese from Monash University and an MBA from the Australian Graduate School of Management. She has a passion for helping businesses find the best staff while providing top-notch recruitment consulting services for those looking for new roles. Her company S10, a leading employment agency in Australia, prides itself on being innovative and forward-thinking. She has had an exciting career journey starting out in hospitality while learning Japanese in Japan before finding her feet working for renowned recruiter, Julia Ross. I'm thrilled to have on the podcast today an employment and recruitment specialist, entrepreneur, and passionate about one day owning a mini farm with Clydesdale horses to fainting goats and even a giant eagle. Roxanne Calder. Roxanne, welcome to the show. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, you're welcome. And it's it's a real timely topic right now to be talking about recruitment and, you know, people people's role in this world when it comes to the corporate space. Uh, we've seen quite a shift over the last few years. But before we dive into that world, I'm really curious, uh, where did you grow up and what was the big dream when you were a young child? Um, so I, I was born in Scotland. Um we then moved to um, Southern Africa. Um, my brother was born there. And then we moved to Melbourne. My mum is Australian. My dad is Scottish. Um, so then started schooling in Melbourne. Um, and then with my father's job, we moved um, throughout Australia. So we moved a lot. Um, but I always knew that I wanted to have some form of a career. Um, you know, I always knew that that was going to be the case. And, you know, 
my dreams, I think like lots of children, they sort of shifted and changed. The thread though was about helping people. And I say that because I remember one of them being that I wanted to be a doctor in Southeast Asia, um, you know, to help people. Now, you know, I didn't have the science background <laughs> to be able to get me there for that. But the thread was, you know, about um, assisting and helping people. Um, so I, I knew I would, would do something along those lines. And what a great start to your formative years, uh, having that opportunity to move through different countries and, you know, see different perspectives, different cultures. Uh, you know, you must treasure that that time now when you look back and go, when we think about a very diverse workforce and, and a real globalized view on the world now. Yeah, I think it, it helps also build a level of resilience because, um, you know, you have to make friends pretty quickly when you move. Um, and it's one of the things, and also you have to learn how to, um, not have friends in a situation and, you know, create your own fun. Um, and, and also letter writing skills. Like I remember writing letters <laughs> to my friends it, it, for the, you know, way of communication and things like that. It, I think it was, you know, a really great experience. Um, but luckily it was in a supportive way because not, you know, all children would be able to adapt and cope with, with that level of change, et cetera. Mm. And so moving into university, you started out with a Bachelor of Arts and, uh, you know, like many of us, we, we go through university, we have a lot of fun and we're trying to explore and be exposed to different things in the world. What was it about human resources and then Japanese that really caught your attention? Well, I did, um, I did Japanese at school. I did it as, um, I did it all the way through high school, actually. So I started in year eight, I think it was. Um, did it in my HSE. Um, and the reason that I did it at school was, um, because my dad was like, you need to get another language. <laughs> so, you know, and I did French as well. Um, and then I, I took it to university because it was what I really enjoyed doing. I loved the whole linguistic part of it and, um, you know, being able to, I mean, at that stage, I couldn't really speak the language until you go to a country and you sort of immerse yourself in it. Um, but yeah, it was, um, and I, I also did Russian at, at uni as well. Um, I'm not saying that I'm a, a linguist per se, but they, I loved, I just loved that, that part of um, study. Yeah, beautiful. And so you, you took that opportunity uh, during one of your summers to head across to Japan uh, to, to really immerse yourself in a language. And as you mentioned there, to really catch a language, you really need to be surrounded by it uh, pretty much 24-7 to really get your handle on it and be able to form sentences and to make sense of, you know, I suppose a different way of grammatically putting things together. I, whereabouts in Japan were you based and, and what was that life like? So I, I first went to Japan. I, um, the university had like a mini scholarship for a group of students. I think it was in my second year and that was my first stint when I went there. It was six, I think it was six weeks at one of the unis over summer. And then I went after I graduated and the reason, the whole reason I went was because I'd spent all this time at school and university and still my language skills were, you know, not, not enough. Um, so, um, I first went to Tokyo, um, that was with the university. And then when I went by myself, I went, um, to a little town called Atami, which is, um, like a seaside town outside of Tokyo. Um, but I traveled all throughout Japan. I went to Osaka and Nagoya. Um, yeah, it was, it was a fantastic, 
fantastic opportunity um, and I did a whole variety of different jobs. And, you know, once you, you get into some of those jobs there, what yeah. did you notice is the biggest difference between uh, the way companies are led there um, compared to Australia? What, what was the biggest difference for you? Um, probably, well, first of all, you work six days a week there. Um, you know, that was the, the first thing. Um, and coming from university where I worked part-time, um, you know, it wasn't a shop to the system, which is interesting because everybody did it. Mm. So, you know, so I would say probably the work ethic. I would say the way that, it, so even then, the way everything was so automated, you know, and everything was clockwork, um, precision, organized, and it didn't matter where you went, that, that was, um, you know, the takeaway from it all. Um, you know, it was, it was, like I said, it was really, really interesting and um, memorable and highly, highly valuable experience for me. Yeah, one of the things I noticed in Japan too is you learn a lot about respect and trust mm -hmm. and being probably extremely present because of the customs that are involved in the way that you connect and communicate with people. Uh, what was it like to be at the front of a hotel reception in a kimono uh, greeting people every day? Yeah, yeah. So that was my first job. And you're right, that whole respect piece, um, that like you bound give respect to everybody. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I remember when I went traveling after I left Japan and I was so used to bowing all the time, but I was in the UK and a taxi, was the UK or here, it was one of them. And a taxi came past because you bow at taxis in Japan as well. Mm. And I remember bowing at a taxi as well, just because it was automatic. Um, but to answer your question about the kimono, um, yeah, so the, the, my job was to stand at the front with a line of other Japanese girls. Um, so I think there were three to five of us. And we would meet and greet everybody that came through. So everyone that came through, we'd bow and say, um, you know, Yoroshaimase, which is, you know, welcome. And if they went and came back, it was Yoroshaimase, which is welcome back. Um, and then if you were lucky, you got to escort the guest up to their room. So that was great for someone who's hyper because, you know, a, a, Standing there all day, <laughs> it was a struggle. Um, and then um, I did, um, I did have a, an issue with the kimono in that I didn't fit into it after a few months because <laughs> I ate so much food over there um, that I then had to wear the men's kimono. <laughs> so there were all these pretty Japanese girls in their gorgeous kimonos, which were white with little blue. I remember them; they were gorgeous blue florals. And there was me and the grey men's one, <laughs> standing out a lot. <laughs> uh, enjoying the luxuries of Japanese food. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know people don't think it's, um, you know, calorie, high in calories, but when you enjoy it and eat a lot of it, um, it can be. <laughs> energy in, uh, versus energy art, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, now from Japan, did you you came back to Australia, or have I you, did. or did you spend some time working in other parts of the world? Yeah, no. I at that stage, I came back to Australia. I was there for three and a half years. I came back right in the middle of, um, you know, the recession hit, um, and it was interesting because the reason I went to Japan, apart from the language piece, was because the job situation in Australia was quite dire. Mm. Um, and so again, you know, about just being employable, I, I knew that for me to get ahead, I really had to sort of develop a skill and an additional skill apart from my degree. 
And then when I came back, um, I was sort of facing the tail end of that. And, um, you know, all my friends had established themselves in careers and jobs and that I was starting to feel a little bit out of it. Um, so I, yeah, I came back to sort of settle down a bit and carve out a career. I think now, like, like maybe back then there was less inclination from companies to really recognize the value of working in different countries and, uh, different cultures, you know, maybe if you'd worked mm. in the UK, that probably gives you a good grounding back in Australia, but places like Asia back then, it, it wasn't, it, it was as though you hadn't actually worked in a way sometimes. And so I can imagine how challenging that was. Are you finding now that people are really leaning into uh, employees that have spent time in different industries, different countries, different cultures, and value those experiences when they're looking to hire people? Look, definitely. Um, I remember at the time, if you'd worked in the UK, it was highly valued then. And, you know, Aussies had a great reputation, um, work ethic then. But you're right, because when you're working in Asia, it's not just the language piece, it's the cultural piece as well. Um, and there is a skill set that you develop. I know, you know, personally, um, you know, for my resilience, like, you know, you, you have to problem solve yourself. You have to work it out. Um, I remember going to the visa to get my visa extended and, struggling with the, the words there because they weren't the normal day-to-day words that you would use and you had to negotiate. Um, you know, you negotiated your salary over there. Um, if you wanted a new job, then you had to apply for a new job. You know, all of these things in a country that the language, um, you know, it, it, you don't know the language. And so you start to pick up things like body language and all these other things and be present. You're absolutely right because if you're not present, you miss out on all those nuances. Um, but absolutely, that is um, really regarded now when people um, are looking to hire for a whole variety of reasons that is beyond just as the standard skill set. It's, you know, everything else that comes with it, the resilience, the problem solving, the enterprise thinking, um, you know, even what languages were you able to pick up any of the languages, um, because that also shows a level of curiosity, yeah. um, all of it that comes with it. Um, it I really encourage people to to do that if they can, especially you know, university, graduate, school leavers, anyone that has an opportunity to do that, um, I think it's, you know, really valuable. Mm. I, I remember my probably greatest uh, point in time of learn, like really establishing communication as a school was three months in Taiwan where I was working with the national team and I was given, uh, I think at the time, three athletes, the rest of the athletes were sent over to China and for three months, I had three athletes that the only word of English they spoke was pretty much hello. <laughs> Within a year, they were translating for me, which was quite fascinating. Uh, they learned very fast. Obviously, they could read it. They had learned it, but they don't didn't speak it. So that observation piece became paramount. And I still think that's my greatest gift in you know, developing communication skills in my, my entire life. So which is quite fascinating. Well, it's little things you pick up because when you don't understand the full context of the full sentences, you pick up shifts in, um, you know, eye contact mm. or shifts in facial expressions or um, movements of shoulders or hands. Or those little subtle signs because you have to rely on them. And then it helps you when you write, when you come back. It's like, oh, actually, you've got this skill set that is developed and amplified more so because of it. It, it, it is really great. It's like any skill in life, unless you flex the muscle, so to speak, um, it it doesn't get used, right? It just it sits there and wastes away. So, you know, right. being then present and attentive to observation 
and I think one thing's important, right? A lot of people look at how do you read other people's body language. And in most cases, you know, they'll read things online and it says, if you look up here, it means this. If they cross their arms, it means this. Well, not really. It, it's, mm. Everyone has a default. So it's actually looking for the real subtle shifts. And as you said, nuances. And, you know, when you're in those environments, you have to trust those nuances and instincts versus what you verbally hear. It's a fascinating time. Yeah, and I think also for this is why um, managers and leaders have to be, you know, genuine, authentic, real, because when you are not, you're giving off the message subtly mm. of something that's in conflict with what you're saying, and people will pick up on that, even if they don't realize it in the moment. They will go away with some level of feeling or um, intuition that something with just a tiny bit of miss. Um, and what it'll be processed later, but, um, yeah, all, I think all of that is, um, all plays a part in your know, communication. And it plays a big part in being an employable as well. Like the congruency between your verbal language and your nonverbal communication, uh, is so important because it's a subconscious thing, as you mentioned there, right? You generally absorb it subconsciously. Uh, those that are finally attuned will be conscious to the fact of observing what's going on, but most people it's happening unconsciously. Uh, which is, which is interesting. Now for you, you know, you talked about that human resources being quite fascinating for you in the last um, year of university when you're studying your BA. What was it mm -hmm. about human resources that grasped your attention and then I suppose helped lead you to recruitment um, yeah. in the future? You know, I, I probably... I don't know if I can answer that properly for you. All I know is that when I did my BA, I did the subjects that I thought were the right subjects to do. And then when I um, did this subject in my final year, um, and at that stage, you know, HR wasn't massively talked about or, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a profession. You don't, you didn't apply for an HR, you know, manager's role then. I think, I mean, I'm showing my age now, but <laughs> I think we still referred to like personnel offices then, you know, like it was, quite um quite different so that was a, like a new subject at the time and it was just the fact that it was delving into people um and i could really relate to it so i you know when you find something that just clicks for you and for me um you know that was my best performing subject when i was um, at university isn't that interesting i just thinking you know the advancement of technology and how that's come to the fore when you think about the human resources space you think about how many different job types there are now inside yeah. the the bracket of human resources it's kind of expanding as fast as technology is uh and so the i suppose when people are thinking about what skills do i need for the future the people skills and human intelligence in a way is becoming more important than it ever has even yeah. as we see artificial intelligence and technology advancing uh, completely and i think you know i understand why people are i'm going to use the word scared there or fearful or worried about it um it, it is you know it's going to be well it is it's our next big thing um as big as the internet so i understand why people might be concerned but i think they should take a different view on it they should be embracing it getting ahead of it getting on top of it and anyone who has really fluent, great human skills um, will do really well in it um, because it'll just make it like, for, for example, someone like me who loves to write, um, you would think that that whole chat GPT thing, for example, will be like, oh, you don't, rocks, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> 
But in actual fact, no, it's, it's actually going to enhance and make, make my job um, better and make what I produce better. Um, and also for teaching people at schools. But uh, having said that, though, I do think we have to be really mindful of, um, you know, keeping fine tuning and being aware of our skill set. I, I use this example a lot when I talk to people about um, anything to do with AI. I still reverse park using um, my own skills that I learned when I first got my driver's license. Despite the camera, despite the beeps, <laughs> I still turn around, I still judge it, I still do come in at the right angle because I don't want to lose that skill. And, and I feel like it's a slippery slope because once you start to not do that skill anymore, then other things come into play. And even little things like if my memory, if I'm like, how do I spell that word? Or what was the name of that? I try and just do it myself and not Google. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah. Reminds me of uh, a very good speaker and author, Anders Orman Nilsson from Australia. Not sure if you've met him, but uh, he wrote a book about 10 years ago called Digilog. And it's the, it's kind of the, blending the digital minds with our analog hearts. And so I love Uh the fact that you're still reversing using your analog skills, which is uh, fantastic. Uh, Despite my husband's um, protest. (laughs) (laughs) I've embraced technology and and that skill set, I must say. We're in a we're in a phase which is quite fascinating where there's, you know, redundancies happening. There are resignations happening. Um, but a lot of companies are still finding it really difficult to employ people with the right skills. And so it's fascinating where we see kind of the, sh- the shift where, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, comp- you know, for the financial reasons, companies are making changes or skill sets, they're making changes to how their workforce looks. Um, but then we've also got, yeah, so many people out there. Why are we seeing such a big skill shortage? Is it just the pace of change? Well, it's it's more, it is that, but it's more than that. I'm glad you said pace of change because lots of people don't consider that and that's absolutely true because and that gap is actually getting bigger. But if we overlay it, if, if we sort of go back a step and say, and, and the reason I say this is because people attribute the skill shortage to COVID. It's not the case. We were suffering from this well before COVID. It just wasn't felt as acutely. Um, so the reason we're in this situation, I'll talk about Australia mostly, um, is because we don't have the birth rate to replace what was coming through. So in the 60s, I think it was 3.6 birth rates. Um, I think it's moved up a little bit since um, a couple of years ago, but it still is sitting like 1.3 or something like that. So you've got all the people who were... You know, the birth rates back in the 60s and 70s who are now exiting the workforce. They've got that. And then you don't have the replacements coming through. And then you've got what you're talking about, which is that gap in skills or the pace of change that we haven't embraced enough to be upskilling, upskilling, upskilling. I think the mode and, you know, I, I, I wrote something just the other day. It might have been a blog or something. And I was referring to what it was like pre-COVID times. And I described it as, and it was referring to myself, but I described it as a little bit dozy and a little bit ho-hum compared to now mm. because everything was, you know, sort of um, a little bit more tick the box, a little bit clock in, um, whereas now things change every day, every week, every month, something else new is happening. And if you're not across it and you're not up to date with it, then you're going to be left behind. So that's why, you know, when we were talking before about AI or ChatGPT or whatever that might be, people have to get across it. You don't have to be skilled at it. 
that understand it. Mm. Um, so yeah, so the, to answer your question, the skill shortage is uh, we don't have the replacement rates in terms of people, and then we've got this whole gap in terms of skill um, skill setting. I mean, of course, you know, COVID just blew it all up for everybody for businesses because everyone was trying to hire um, to, to you know get back some momentum and and you know tackle the economy that we that we had last year, and we were hiring to do that, and then. And then we've got the other reverse that's happened with our, you know, labour market and let some levels of entitlement that, that came with that with the great resignation and everything else. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I think, you know, before COVID, there was that sort of five, 10, five to 10 percent of people that would be generally lifelong learners who had a growth mindset. They were always upgrading along the way and thinking about what they need to to be more effective in life or enjoy things yeah. better. I think maybe that shifted a bit since COVID. We've seen, obviously, I think it was something like uh, 9,800% growth in online courses being uptaken. So we saw a lot more people starting to upskill, I, I think, maybe, um, that is what we've seen is that that growth mindset is becoming more prominent. Uh, but it's hard to think, you know, like it's what do I enjoy doing now that I want to continue to keep skilling myself in what I already enjoy versus the unknown of what's going to be required for, for me and my career in, you know, two, three, five, ten 10 years time. Yeah. That's a little abstract for people. I think sometimes. It is. Maybe it's a better way to frame it because you're right. Cause how do you sit down and, on a Sunday and think, right, I'm going to map out my career and what are the skills that I need and what are my transferables and where will I be? And it, it doesn't have to be like that. Um, instead, I sort of encourage people to think of, think about this. We probably, I think we spend something like a third, a third, yeah, a third of our life, um, working. And there's such a reduced amount of time that we spend actually socializing with people, our friends, et cetera. So if we're spending a third of our life working, take out the, you know, the formative years when you're growing up, then once you hit the workforce, it's pretty much full on. But what do we do to keep the maintenance on that? If you have a car, if you have a house, you've got insurance, you renovate your house, you service your car, you make sure it doesn't break down, better keep on top of that. Um, but what do we do for our own um, career and our own jobs? I think if we, if we take a look like that instead, then people will, will maybe not be so daunted by the need to be upskilling and, mm-hmm. and continuing to learn. Um, because after all, when you spend so much time at work, um, it should be important that that's as equally valued and also it determines what we do with our life. I think when you can have some form of charge with your career and your job, it gives you freedom um, and choice and all of those things instead of sort of being pushed into one area or another area and, um, yeah. Yeah, interesting. I know I always, I'm someone that will lean into uh, conversations which, I may not like or may not agree with. Uh, and it's just that curiosity to find out what is someone, what has someone caught that I haven't caught? What is the, what is the perspective they're seeing it from that I haven't understood it from yet? Uh, and, and that's something I thrive on. And I'm very fortunate to have that, I, I suppose, innate way of thinking, which allows me then to continually see things from different, because I'm seeing things from different perspective and different ideas then I'm always expanding my knowledge and and even understanding of things. Um, I, how, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh no, I was going to say I think see I think that comes from 
I, I tend to do the same. I think I like, I know that my views are not the right views all the time. And so when I, you know, dinner parties or friends or anything, if someone disagrees with me, I want to know, like, tell me why. <laughs> yeah. Tell me why you think that because this is what I think. Help me understand it. And then if you, if you then take that into a workplace situation, it helps you to understand people that you're working with. So when you're negotiating, because if you can really, usually when you're talking about an issue or something, if you can get to the crux of it, it won't be what is verbally said. It'll be something else. So mm-hmm. if you can actually understand that, then you can get resolution or solutions or, or whatever it might be. And I also think like there's a level of curiosity, but also a freedom to receive feedback and have some self-awareness. Because if you didn't have that, then you couldn't ask that question. You'd be stuck on uh, holding on to that frame of reference or that, that mindset around an issue, mm-hmm. which I think is, you know, I think it's dangerous to be like that. Yeah. So when you're working with uh, both companies and individuals, when you look at, mm. you know, people being employable in in our current day and then maybe what's what, what you're seeing the next few years, what are the skill sets that you're seeing that people maybe lack a little in that if they could develop would really help their ability to uh, continue to, you know, be employable for future roles? Um, I think that learning piece, that curiosity, because especially when we talk about that pace of change and skills, because and that will help people to um, to to learn and apply themselves. And I think you know if you've not studied for a while, and I can relate to that when I finished my degree and then I'm you know did my second degree. If you've not studied for a while or you haven't done something for a little bit, it it, it can be hard. So it can be a little bit daunting to go back and reskill, upskill, learn something. But that that curiosity piece, maybe just try and get in the habit of asking why or understanding a bit more or, you know, questioning something like why is it like that? How how come that is doing it that way or or, or something? And then before you know it, it's more habitual. Um, but that that learning curiosity, I think we, we absolutely have to keep. Mm. And you. You know, in this space where, you know, people may feel like their job may be under threat a little bit from potential redundancies, um, where companies may have to uh, manage expenses to to deal with a, a ch- uh, like a difficult financial landscape. What are those sort of attributes that sort of leaders will look to first in regards to the people they're likely to keep versus those that maybe uh, they need to let go during tough times? Yeah. So I think maybe the, the first thing to talk about with redundancies is it'll be, and I always say this to candidates or job seekers that I meet who have been made redundant, their role has been made redundant, not them. Yep. So to try and remove and detach from the personal piece with it. Um, and sometimes some of the best workers are made redundant because it's not, People don't get to cherry pick. So, you know, it'll be a head office call, you know, 10,000 have to go or 10% of the workforce or whatever it might be. Um, and, and it is, it is devastating when, when that happens. It really affects and knocks people's self-esteem and confidence. Um, but the advice I give when I meet people is, it, first of all, I say to people, take some time, you know, whether it's one week, one day, one month, whatever it is. Um, you need to take some time to feel a tiny bit sorry for yourself. It's okay. <laughs> you know, you need to, um, 
whatever, whatever that takes, because you need a level of, I don't know if it's grief or something like that, but you know, you've got to process it. But then very quickly, I encourage people to get back on and not to be afraid to um, go and see recruiters or go for interviews. Um, cause the quicker that you start to get back into the, the mode and the swing of it, then the quicker you're going to be back on track again. The longer you leave it, the harder it then becomes and people get, um, almost like it's too hard to, to tackle and the procrastination mm. of it all. Um, you know, I've got a good example of a lady who was referred to me the other week and this is what got her the job to, sorry, to answer your question with that. It was about her attitude around it. So she'd been working one organization for close to 20 years. Wow. Um, so when her and I met, we spoke about how, you know, she's probably used to being the go-to person in that in that business and knowing everything. And now she's got to go to an organization where she knows nothing and she will not be the go-to person. Um, so it's, you know, understanding what you're about to enter and making sure you're aware of it and managing expectations. But what she did do, I sent her some sort of testing and things to do. She did the testing. Lots of people do not do the testing or they won't go for the interview or they won't want to do a face-to-face interview. They'd rather do a Zoom interview. It's all of those little things where she just embraced it. So she wasn't worried. She asked for feedback. She asked me to help her with some coaching interview tips. And then she just went and did it. Mm-hmm. And it was great. And that's what the um, the client who ended up hiring her bought into with her attitude. It wasn't that, you know, she had certain skills that um, she didn't have some skills that he required, but he loved the way that she embraced what what was about what was heading towards her and she tackled it the right way. So that sort of level of attitude, um, very i really encourage people to try and do that try try not to be scared <laughs> try to be a little bit fearless have some courage um and you know just be open to tackling new situations before you know it you're on a different path mm. and and as a as a recruiter oh, sorry as a as company when we're recruiting people obviously the, there's been a shift uh, for quite a long time now in regards to we used to have lifelong workers but that that's there's not so many of those anymore. It's pretty rare. Uh, yeah. And and are we are you seeing companies more look to okay if we can get two to three years out of this person we're happy or are we are we still seeing more of a mindset of you know we're hiring this person for the long term? Well, it's a hard that's a hard question. Um, people still want longevity, and and it used to be that you could train someone quickly, but we as we've just been talking about now. You know the level and the, the skills gap is is big, so that the therefore when you're going into a role, um, the time needed to come up to speed is even longer now. So if it used to be two or three months five years ago, now it's minimum six months. So if you're leaving in two years, and from a business perspective, they've got to um, think about return on investment. So to answer your question, yes, companies are reconciled to the fact that. Um, people don't stay in jobs as long, but do they still want people to stay in jobs? Absolutely they do. Mm. Um, because it, it's good for business. Retention is very, it is always good for business. Mm. Um, and you know, the skill set that comes with it, et cetera. And it, then it's interesting what you spoke about in terms of that sort of longevity with roles and how we saw that shift in the movement. And, and a lot of that was, you know, caused about, you know, people wanting more from their job and probably didn't have a voice to say that um, pre-COVID time, and now they've got the voice. Um, but equally, I think people are looking for loyalty again. I, I think that we'll start to see that as the new black. <laughs> yeah, I, I know with regards to my business partner and I, we focus on the three hours, which is 
longevity, loyalty, and legacy. And so we're yeah. looking looking at that in a person. What are they showing that? And you know, I've got some people at the moment that are like, "Hey, we want to come and work for you." And I look at their resume and go, "You've had eleven months here. You've had two months here. You are uh, two years here. You've like, and there's nothing longer than three years, and everything seems to be short term." So. I'm very curious to understand for them, like why why is the long why is there no longevity in what you're doing, and and what is the legacy you're wanting to leave on this world, and where is your loyalty? And there might be a different reasons why they've had that, but I really have to dive deep into it because for me, I'm like, I'm not interested in hiring someone for just two years. Yeah, um, I know people and, may leave. That's okay, but I'm looking for the longer term. So yeah, you want intention. Yeah, hmm. I think when when I talk to candidates in similar situations, what you've just described with the resume, where you've got short stints, what I'm looking for is um, reflection. So because people will say, oh, I really want to my next job. I really want to be there for long term. First of all, what is what is long term to you? Hmm. And then why hasn't it happened already? Talk to me about these decisions that you made. Um, and so what you want to see is a level of reflection that people are learning. Again, learning, you know, it's always about learning and refining and applying what you've learned. It doesn't have to be just about the job. It can be about yourself. And it's probably even more powerful if you can learn more about yourself. Yeah, cause I, find, I find it really fascinating as a CEO too to look at this is you've got, like for me, I would prefer people to be very uh, explorative in their kind of, coming out of high school through to kind of their 30s in a way and have exposure to lots of things rather than just going to university, studying finance and going straight into an accounting firm and yeah. then staying there. I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm more interested in the person that's had different experiences, but it's always difficult, as I said, because I want that, but then that may mean their resume changes quite a lot. So then, how, yeah, so being able to delve in and understand will they have the longevity and loyalty now that they've had lots of exposures and they can bring different perspectives to the work that we do? Yeah. There's, um, I, I agree with you and I think that's one of, one of the loves of my job is when you can identify talent that they mightn't see themselves or when maybe the client I'm hiring for might be thinking that's not the background that I want but you know that they can actually do the job. Hmm. So... And that does come from what you've just spoken about, about the breadth of industry experience. In some of those formative years, when you're first entering the workforce, that's first probably 10 years. Um, I always look for some other indicators. So things like, um, what are some of the questions? Like I'll ask questions around like part-time jobs they had at school. Um, did they move and change a lot then? Did they stick it somewhere for, you know, three, four, five years? Um, or things like, tell me who you're in touch with from school. Are you or teachers or you know friends from school because I think some of that is indicative of that piece that you're looking for which is that loyalty that connection um, and, and everything that goes with it mm. so you've obviously had a great career and over the last year or two you've put your your thoughts your ideas your research into a book called employable uh, you know, for you, what was the catalyst to writing that book? Yeah, well, um, to, I mean, there were a couple of things. Mostly, though, <laughs> I was approached to do it by a publisher. And I think in life, you should take opportunities when they're given to you and try and work it out later. So meaning 
I didn't want to say no, but I didn't know how I was going to say yes and commit to it. <laughs> so I said yes. Um, and so that's the first reason. Then the second reason, um, was about helping people again. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm most certainly no one's Mother Teresa, but, um, you know, I, I wanted to be able to give people advice. Um, because in my career, when I've, you know, like I said to you before, when I, when I meet people and I can see that they can do a job, over 50% will let themselves down by either not going for it, quitting after a couple of months because it's hard and, and they're, they're lacking that self-belief. So I was hoping that, you know, my, my book called Employable, um, would help people to just, um, you know, dig a little bit deeper, have some faith in themselves and really take on um, possible career options for them that maybe they, they wouldn't have considered previously, just to try and, I suppose, inspire people to believe in themselves. Mm, I, I love that kind of intention there, inspire people to believe in themselves. Uh, before we dive into what those seven attributes uh, to assure your working future are, uh, what did you learn most about yourself while writing the book? Um, ooh. Um, I learned I could do more than I thought I was capable of. So I, I, I did, when I did my second degree, I worked really hard at that and I was not the smartest in the group. And so I would be the one who worked the hardest and it was good for my self-confidence. And this was like another degree. So same sort of thing. I went into it being worried about a whole lot of things. Um, you know, could I have the attention span to, to write <laughs> for that period of time? It, you know, the research involved. So I, I developed a level of confidence. I learned to value my time. Mm. I also really appreciated that whilst I'm writing it, um, other people paid for that, meaning, you know, people in my life, because, you know, it's not a, an easy thing. You, you, there were days I was working 18-hour days sometimes. I think I, in the end, I worked for 36 days straight with you know, no, no break or anything like that. Everyone else pays for that. You know, my, my working environment, they had to pick up the load. My partner, you know, my mom, my dad, you know, my sister, my family, everyone else that's involved in my life, my friends, you know, everyone, other people contribute to you being able to do that. Um, and, but time is probably what I valued the most and learned from that. Oh, beautiful. So we've touched on a couple of the attributes. Uh, we talked about knowledge, so that, that learning lots. We've talked about dependability to a certain extent and even resilience. Uh, what, are, what are some of the other attributes in, in the book? Uh, and can you give, share a little bit of light around what they mean and, and how people can use them to become more employable? Sure, sure. So the, the seven attributes are the first for knowledge, um, dependability, resilience, self-awareness, self-confidence, interpersonal mouth, and optimism. So the ones probably the highlight, um, are the being um, optimistic, that interpersonal mouth, the self-confidence and self-awareness. So the optimism one I, I added because I don't know the best way to describe it except to say and I don't want to sound blunt, but um, people like to be around optimistic people. And I, I don't mean Pollyanna, as in unrealistic, but it's light. When you're around people who are optimistic, mm -hmm. it, it's contagious and it um, people want to be around you more. So if you have more of a 
negative mindset on, on life, um, it, it, it can just bring people down. So, and I think if you are in any leadership role, any sort of management responsibility, I mean, equally, you have to be analytical and you've got to see the risks. I'm not saying anything about that. But you've got to be able to problem solve. And to problem solve, you have to have some a level of optimism. Mm. You've got to be able to see through, see big picture. Um, so you know, that is, is critical. And it doesn't matter what role you do. It could be your first job. Um, if you go in there with a level of optimism, um, you see things differently. You see the possibilities. You don't see, you know, the, the, the negative side of it. Um, the international analysis is all about communication. So that's about, um, how we communicate, you know, listening, um, everything else that comes with that and how to, maybe how to communicate better. I think that communication piece is something that we have to constantly, constantly finesse. Um, uh, you know, I give examples, I think, in the book about how, you know, when someone um, might be annoyed or angry and then they come at you in a certain way with words or a tone and our first reaction is to respond back yeah. when in actual fact what we need to do is not. <laughs> and, you know, you learn to how to diffuse it and get the best outcome instead. Um, and then, of course, you know, the self-awareness. Um, that's, I mean, that's probably something that I've been working on and love is, the, you know, I think I had worked on it to have a reasonably high level of self-awareness. I'm absolutely not at the highest nominees. Mm. Um, but I think I have a, a reasonable level. Um, and that helps everything. You know, that, that helps you to understand people better. It helps you to communicate better. It helps you be a better human. Um, you know, if you can understand the impact, it helps you to be um, your more authentic self. Because, you know, if you can understand how you, what your perception is and is that really who you are, um, and if it's not, then change whatever actions you're doing. Um, and then, of course, I put self-confidence in there because people often confuse that with, you know, self-esteem and self-awareness, but it's, it's different. When you have a level of self-confidence, again, like optimism, people want to be around you. And you don't have to be self-confident about everything. Um, you know, like I said at the beginning, science was not my forte. <laughs> Why wouldn't be? I want to talk about science and all the things that go with that. But, you know, I can talk ad nauseum about recruitment. Um, yeah. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, obviously all these attributes in here, knowledge, dependability, resilience, interpersonal now, self-awareness, self-confidence, and optimism. It's not just something that you read the book and go, Hey, cool. Now I'm really good at this. It's something they need to work on. Um, every yeah. single one of them, right? They're, they're a long-term project to be able to shift what is a behavior or an attitude um, or something that Correct. you have been used to doing because of a routine. Yeah, that's right. And that you're right, and it'll shift and change as you go through your life. And you probably have one that one or two that is much more your attribute. Like for me, it was resilience, probably. And I don't know if that was from you know moving around as a child or from living in Japan. Um, <clears throat> but I tend to have a, a you know a, a reasonable level of resilience. What I needed to work on, though, was my self-awareness and my communication, which is the interpersonal now piece. So, um, so I, 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 you know, put a lot, of, lot into that. And you know, the other attribute that I probably had more naturally was dependability as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone will shift and change with that, and um, you do have to work on it all the time. You'll never be totally well-rounded ever. <laughs> um, yeah. The, the word resilience has become quite topical. In the last couple of years around you know we need more resilient workers who need more resilient companies mm. 
but to create resilience you you need to there's a level of risk and uncertainty that's involved in it uh yeah. to to be able to achieve resilience uh what are some things people can look for in their life to realize they have already overcome quite a lot already and they yeah. already have those resilient skills there but I may not be aware of them or leaning into them as much well maybe i'll talk about what sometimes people confuse as being resilient and i think this is important as a definition um people might say i went through covid i'm resilient it's actually how you weather something mm. so you, you can go through a period of time or a difficulty because you have no choice but to go through it but how do you come out of it the other side that's what being resilient is not coming through it worn um, incapable of, you know, smiling, of living or doing anything. You, you know, you might breathe. <laughs> it's not being resilient. So being resilient is about, okay, I applied myself. I worked through that. Um, and how did I cope with it? And how am I now? And what did I learn from it? Mm-hmm. And how will I tackle something else that comes my way next time? Um, resilience, um, I, I do believe we need to keep working on that. Um, I don't know that our workforce has that in abundance. Um, and, and I do think that COVID, whilst it did stretch us in terms of, um, uh, and you know, that whole period did stretch us in terms of resilience, I think it also increased the level of fragility um, as well. So, we've got, you know, you don't just get something, you've got to get something else when, um, you know, like the shadow part of everything that comes with it. It's always a cost. Mm. When it comes to being employable, how much of a role do companies and leaders take in this space or is it purely down to the individual? So I'm going to go on a limb here um, and say it has to be down to the individual. Now, if you're blessed and you're in a company that supports you with um, training and development and mentoring and coaching and feedback and all those things, then that's fantastic, but you can't rely on that. Um, And... Again, that goes back to the, the whole piece around being, you know, employable and creating your own path. Um, if, if you recognize that you're not getting that in an organization, you need to do something about it for yourself, whether that's a course or whether you work on your own self-awareness or whether you seek out feedback. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go to your boss and ask for feedback. You can go to your colleagues. Even, you know, what we've spoken about in terms of being present, you know, just the, the fact that you can be present and you can be observing and, um, be mindful of the situation that you're in. You know, you can be developing a whole lot of different skills that it doesn't have to be that sits with, with businesses and companies. Not all businesses can afford training um, and development programs or to upskill or reskill. Sometimes it's going to come back to you. And again, that's that whole curiosity piece, knowledge developing. You know, you go off on your own and work out how to do something um, or seek out a mentor um, or, you know, like I said, ask your boss for feedback or anything like that. Um so I, you know, I say that because it's my belief, and I also think that, um, you know, what we said, you have to, um, you have to be who you are, as a as a manager and a leader, and that's my that's my strong belief. Do the same principles apply for a CEO as to anyone else in the organisation? In terms of learning. Uh, in terms of the uh, being employable. So much so, even, yeah, absolutely, because I think the further that you go up the ladder, you've got less people who are saying no to you. Yeah. <laughs> you've got less people who are willing to challenge you. Um, and, you know, 
if we look out on the landscape now of all the different CEOs that are out there, um, making decisions and, you know, being accountable, I think, um, yeah, I think that if we had more of that, if they, you know, held true to their own employability, you know, we might be in a, some different situation. Um, you know, like I, I'm not a CEO, I have a small business, but I, um, I have a coach. I have somebody hmm. who, and I've, we've been working together for maybe, oh, I think seven, over seven years now. Um, and I rely on her to, um, give me honest feedback, but I sometimes often don't want to hear. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she keeps me straight on the, on the narrow of things and all those sorts of things. So I, I do have a business coach that I, um, not on the business piece, but rather on the self development piece. Brilliant. Everyone needs a coach. Yeah. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most mm. successful people ask great questions. Mm. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Mm. Um, well, the most, probably the most monumental would be writing a book. I didn't, I've never written a book before. That was a couple of years ago. Um, I, I did, I had a kinesiology session the other month, the first time. I, what else have I done that's new? Um, I changed from almond milk. <laughs> I changed two almond milk from normal milk. Um, what else? Um, I'm trying to think if I've done something this week. I don't know that I've done something this week. Oh, I know that's not true. I learned how to repot an orchid. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely haven't had that one on before, how to re yeah. <laughs> replant an orchid. Beautiful. Yeah. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Um, gosh, I don't know that I'd have one, but they'd all be centered on uh, humans, meaning things like, why do we not take our own advice? What stops us from doing that? Or um, that whole piece around nurture versus nature. Like how, if we identify things that we really want to change, how much can we really change? And how much is just not going to happen? Um, it, it's all around, I think, anything to do with humans is what I would ask the question around. Couple of great questions there. I really love the first one. Why don't we take our own advice? Uh, I think that's a beautiful one. I like that one. Yeah. That's going to be sitting in my head for a few days, I think. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, for you, what is an inspiring great leader and who is an example of this for you? So, an inspiring, I mean, we always think about, I suppose, people in history. But for me, um, it comes down to, their personal attributes, so their values and how they display them. Um, I'm really fortunate in my job that I get to meet a lot of CEOs um, when I take briefs um, to, you know, to, to fill roles um, in their team. And um, so I get exposed to a lot of um, different CEOs and the ones that stand out are the ones that are humble, mm. the ones that give me their time without Clicking on their phone and email, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in those meetings, it's sort of awkward, it's like, oh. Um, so, you know, people who have um, good values, manners, who are courageous, who are 
um, fearless as well and they can still be difficult. Like I, I remember one of my favorite, um, uh, gentlemen that I, I met many years ago. Um, he was very time poor. Um, and when I met with him, he gave me the brief. He super organized, gave me everything he needed. And then at the end of it, he said, do not waste my time. Please only give me the right people. I was like, got it. So I did. And I've been in touch with him ever since. And what I loved about him was whilst he was straight, um, shooter, um, very direct because he was time poor, et cetera. Um, he was incredibly loyal, really supportive. Um, the moment I delivered him a really great person, he then just opened up the doors for lots of other opportunities. So I just, I loved that he was, um, who he was in that meeting and didn't try to be anybody else. Um, I don't know if that answers your questions. I, I just That's like the great. individuals that I meet. That's fantastic. I, I love it. Roxanne, uh, I think you're a very inspiring, great leader. So how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for you uh, for people to connect with you? Um, they can go to my website. There's a whole lot of information on the website, which is www.s10. <laughs> um, I've got that great book, Employable, if people wanted to have a look at that. Um, again, on our website, there's the first piece of it, which um, you can download and read and see if you like it from there. Otherwise, you can reach out to me um, on email, um, call our office, LinkedIn, all of those things. Um, yeah, I would love to hear from anybody. Thank you for, for, for saying that, Craig. Yeah, beautiful. So we'll put those links in the show notes. Roxanne, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, I love diving deep into your formative years and hearing a lot about your uh, moving around the world, starting in Scotland to East Africa and then into Australia and plus all your journeys along the way and you know even to uh, the kimono moment there in Japan, uh, which I'm sure taught you many many great lessons in life. I, I love your curiosity and the fact that you're willing to make it easy for people to understand how they can be better human beings. Uh, so, you know, and as an offshoot, become more employable. I think those skill sets that are required to be employable are great human skills that will apply to any any aspect of life. And so I really appreciate your time. And I, I encourage people to read the book Employable. I have thoroughly enjoyed the parts that I have had the chance to read so far and will be uh, taking the time to continue and fully read the book. So thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Craig. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next inspiring great leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.